are live from the Empire of Lies. It's a show that brings you the truth, no censorship, and open debate on the issues. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Hey, Rod, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Lee. How about yourself? I'm doing fine. So uh, I want to talk about something, but first, let's talk about who's on the show. In the first hour, we're joined by the great Mark Sloboda, straight out of Moscow. And we've got a lot to talk to Mark about today, so I'm glad he's on the show. I'm also glad that in the second hour, we're joined by a great friend of the show and great broadcaster, Kim Iverson. And we're taking people's calls, 202-521-1320. I'm Lee Stranahan, and Rod, what's the name of the show? You listen to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. So I was listening as I tend to. The show that precedes us on Sputnik is by any means necessary. And by any means necessary is a leftist show. Is that fair to say, Rod? Yeah, that's fair. It's a very leftist show. And I believe that they're real leftists. In other words, they're not like AOC or Bernie Sanders, they still talk about, you know, they are actual leftists. Uh, Sean Blackman, for instance, is a socialist, right? Yeah, if anybody was listening to the uh, right before the show ended, uh, the last show ended, yeah, he was. That's what he was talking about: a socialist, the United States of America. Right, and that's and that's his view. So without debating it. Because I, I just, that's his view, okay? And I believe he holds it sincerely. But did you hear what they were talking about on Binding is Necessary at the end of the show? Did you hear that, Rod? About capitalism and environmentalism? Well, specifically about global climate change. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, it seems to me that climate change is an issue of the WEF, the World Economic Forum and of corporatist liberals. Klaus Schwab, George Soros, the Democratic Party. When I hear someone talking about climate change, I immediately assume that they're an establishment liberal because that's why you're talking about it all the time. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't like that term, Lee, because now it's all uh, all mangled into one because before, if you remember, it was global warming. And then, you know, as the uh, narrative started changing and, you know, we're going into a global cooling, now they just said, you know what, this climate change. So, I, you know, I don't know which one people are really talking about, and they're not being real specific when they say climate change. That's right. The, the term climate change was adopted because their predictions kept having to change. So before anyone gets into, well, this is a nonpartisan issue, I disagree. It's a completely partisan issue because it's not the science that's being questioned. It's the remedy, right? The remedy they always have. And have you seen a clip of Joe Rogan interviewing Candace Owens on the subject of climate change? I think it was probably a couple of years ago. Uh, vaguely, vaguely. Okay, so he was more or less, I'll use the term attacking Candace Owens. He was doing it in a snarky way. He was acting like she was an idiot 
It's like you you don't believe in climate change, but what about these scientists who reached this consensus? He literally said that. He was talking about the scientific consensus. And the reason I think it was probably a couple of years old, I don't think Joe Rogan would say that today because I don't think he'd fall on, because on the pandemic, you know, Joe, what about the consensus on ivermectin, for instance? Right. Or you, you see what I'm saying, Rod? Yeah, and you know, uh, I think people, you know, uh, mismanage Joe Rogan. He's put it out there himself. You know, his parents were hippies, so he comes from the left, and so he kind of, uh, he, you know, uh, sides with the left at times, just uh, off basic nature of how he was raised. So, yeah, I would say he wouldn't go that. He wouldn't say that now, though. And also, you know, he w- works in Hollywood, and he worked in Hollywood for NBC. And there's a certain amount of what Andrew Breitbart called default cultural leftism there. Does it make sense? And, he, you know, I've seen him do stand-up at the Comedy Store in L.A. So he's an L.A. guy, and that's a certain amount of default establishment. By, by cultural leftism, I mean establishment liberalism, Democrat, think. Does that make sense? Yeah, so he's he's admitted to that, Lee, and, uh, you know, he's, he's got, I mean, I don't even know how many podcasts he's done. He's been doing it for a long time. He's one of the, I'd say, originators of podcasting. So, but he's put, he's been very transparent, and he, he'll have people on to debate both sides. And I think he's actually had someone on there recently uh, talking about this and that, you know, that these scientists are all paid by the government, and that's why you never see any debate or anything on this. So I find it very interesting that Sean on Binomians Necessary, was talking about global climate change. Just, there was no difference that I heard in the discussion than if he was a Democrat, except he blamed capitalism for climate change. But did you hear that and and find it a little odd? Uh, Yeah, like I said, whenever I hear climate change, I I need specifics, me, myself, if we're having this conversation, because you can't just uh, mangle everything into one and and expect people to understand what you're talking about. Um, But blaming capitalism, uh, I I see where he's coming from, but I might not necessarily agree with it. Well, and the solution, the people trying to solve climate change are all establishment liberals, right? I mean, it, it would... You know, there's occasionally issues where the talking points of the left, the real left, socialists and communists, are indistinguishable from, from the Democrats. And that's why a lot of people on the right call it radical leftism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Even though the, the establishment left does not favor going as far as socialists might, they still talk about the same talking points. And, you know, Sean, I've heard him talk about uh, uh, COVID-19 in a similar way. He, you know, attacks the Trump administration for doing what they did with COVID-19. He said they killed X number of hundreds of thousands of people. That is a Democrat talking point. And it's coming from a person who I believe is a sincere leftist. So I'm throwing that out for a topic 
some of our callers might have something to say about that. But it just struck me that there's really no difference between the, the talking points Sean was making. He puts it on capitalism, but I don't think that's better, right? Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that, Lee. I wouldn't agree that uh, you can put climate change, whether it be global warming or global. I mean, we're. I mean, we're a rock floating in space. You know what I mean? That's been here thousands of years. To think uh, the United States of America is, you uh, have a effect on uh, climate more than Asia or uh, Russia or these other countries, India that are larger than us. Like, you know what I mean? And that we're going to be able to, con you know, control well, it in I, our, our lifetime. Yeah. That that's a point that obviously. You know, if you approach this scientifically, what you do is you look at what countries put out the most CO2 or whatever's the problem, right? And you'd say, we have to do something to those countries first. But they don't do that. They look at the countries that put out the most CO2, then they go, we need to do something to the U.S. That seems to me to be their solution. It's not scientific. Instead, it's singling out the United States. And that's why I think Trump got out of the Paris Accords, which were a mess. Yeah, China, and, wasn't, China wasn't included in the Paris Accords at all. Right. And, and that's ridiculous. Does it make, you know, again, I'm willing to hear an argument on what's happening. And I'm willing to hear that the climate may be changing. But if your solution is nothing that makes any sense to me, like picking on the U.S. over China, when the numbers are very clear, then I would say it's a pol political solution. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, yeah. And no, I was I would say that that's just uh, you know I know I know you're trying we're trying to solve a problem. Uh, I think that they can solve this problem, but it's more of a virtue signal to say you know America needs to lead the charge when. We're not even close to the size of India, China, you know, these other countries. Now, speaking of political solution, did you hear what Fetterman did? The person who's running for Senate in Pennsylvania, he released a note from his doctor today. Did you see that, Rod? Lee, Lee this is just getting so embarrassing. I mean, it's just like, uh, I, I, there's nothing you can really say about this anymore. They, they just need to just, they need to give up. This guy is just can't. He's not ab physically able, mentally. Uh, he's just not able. And uh, by, by the way, I've got something easier for him. Make a speech on TV. Do an interview that you don't need a teleprompter for. If he did an interview with someone on TV, I think that would win him. And he seemed okay. I think that would win him a lot more votes. I'm sure his doctor's okay. And his doctor says he's recovering. Also, they refer to him as a life-threatening, a nearly fatal stroke. And as far as I know, all strokes are nearly fatal. Am I missing something there, Rod? Um, well, in, in the uh, medical world, some of them might be mild to fatal. So, you know, you can fall in that realm. Uh, but but I, from what I understood, Fetterman had two back-to-back. -back and they, they were, like you said, they were pretty uh, life-threatening. Yeah. So, just interesting to me. So, I don't think he's helping himself, but let's go to Moscow. Not really there, but let's go to the phones to Moscow. After this short break, 
We are joined straight out of Moscow by the great geopolitical analyst, Mark Sloboda, and we'll talk to him right after this break on Backstory. backstory and on the radio in Washington, D.C., the capital of the Empire of Lies, on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Now joining us straight out of Moscow, a good friend of the show and a great guest who knows a lot about stuff because he's in Moscow and he's got family in Ukraine. Well, now Russia, thank God. But he's... The great Mark Sloboda. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Lee, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory. So the the first thing we want to talk about is there was a big speech recently by now I, again it's beneath your abilities, but help correct my pronunciation. Is it Suvigan? Sort of the general. Sort of. Say it again. Sort of Sorvegan. See, I, I, I have trouble rolling, rolling the R's. And that's very important in Russian, right? It, it helps. Yes. And I can barely speak sometimes. So it's, it, You have to do it a lot more in Spanish, but yeah. Good, good point. So did you see the speech by Sorvegan? Yes. Okay. So this is really his first public speech since he took over the military operation uh, uh, as general head of it, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he made some statements, but it was more him taking questions from the press. So let me ask this first. In general, because you're the perfect person to ask this to, because you're very knowledgeable and you're kind of cynical. Is that fair to say, Mark? I, I regard cynicism as an art form. Yes, good good point. And you're not a guy who's who's a suck up. You're not going to glad hand us. So, what was except your to you, Lee. except to you? Oh yeah. So, what was your impression of the speech? Did you like it? Because you, you'll be honest with us, Mark. What did you think of Sorovigan? Yeah, I mean, he's not a public speaker. Uh, he's a general, and he's known for. Being laconic, being a man of few words, and when he does speak, it is usually a, a call to action. Um, he, um, he he previously served in Syria in the operation in Syria, and um, previously in this campaign, he has been uh, in command of the South, um, where arguably he had the greatest success uh, of any of the theater commanders um, and uh, you know where uh, the focus of the conflict has returned once again with the new um, Kiev regime uh, offensive towards Harrison um, but um, he is known by his colleagues uh, affectionately as General Armageddon uh, for his um, 
preference uh, for using aviation uh, as much as possible um, and for his um, ability to think outside the box to be a maverick. Now, what what you're describing is why I think you would want to hear from a general. You're saying he's not a speaker, he's a general, so he acted like it, I take it. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Um, from the content of the speech, I didn't see anything there that I was particularly um, negative to me. All right, I, I can't say it was a, a great morale call to arms or anything, but he addressed the pressing issues, and I think he was very honest about the difficult situation right now in Kherson, where the Kiev regime has has gathered 60,000 troops, which is a, a significant concentration, uh, even if most of them are uh, poorly trained uh, territorial defense, you know, civilians with guns shoved in their hands, basically. Uh, but, uh, you know, in military matters, uh, you know, uh, it has often said that quantity has a quality all of its own. Uh, and when you've got 60,000, um, which uh, almost certainly is significantly outnumbers uh, the Russian defenders in this case, um, you know, uh, it is it is going to be a difficult situation. And it is compounded by the fact that um, the Russian forces are trying to evacuate the civilian population of Kherson so they can properly defend it. Um, which is what they should do according to the rules of war. Um, you'll remember that Amnesty International called out that the Kiev regime, uh, when they are defending urban areas, rather than moving the citizens out, they actually kept them there and used them as human shields, which is, of course, a war crime. Um, so I, I, I think that that is hampering their efforts because they need, of course, to focus on that. Uh, but um, so far, um, they have held the new defensive lines uh, that they set about three weeks ago. Um, and uh, I think most of the Kiev regime attacks thus far have been more, uh, shall we say, recon in force uh, or um, uh, probing attacks. Uh, but they have been smacked down pretty hard. Uh, so, uh, and the Kiev regime, I mean, they're basically charging across open, now muddy step um, into the face of far superior uh, quantity and quality-wise artillery, rocket systems, and aviation. And all along, I mean, for the, for the last uh, two months, uh, Kiev forces have suffered terrible, uh, really awful, casualties uh, in the South across this step, and they're continuing to do it now. In fact, uh, a number of uh, this is, you know, coming from the the Ukraine social media channels, but um, there uh, not only are uh, a lot of Kiev regime uh, forces, conscripts, uh, refusing to charge, you know, on suicide runs, you know, in mass human waves across the steppe, but a great deal of their foreign mercenaries, and they seem to have a a very high number of foreign mercenaries, quote unquote, at this point. But they are also evidently refusing to charge into the face of, uh, you know, uh, 
this uh, superior Russian fires um, uh, across these these open fields and in in kamikaze runs, and it has resulted in a very slow faltering beginning to this offensive. And the Russians are clearly anticipating a big attack there. And yes. as you we've talked about before, they started evacuating people. But also the big headline today is that Putin declared martial law in the four new territories. But he pointed out that the regions had been under martial law before Russia, before the referendums, correct? Yeah, I mean, the local uh, officials there that have been governing them, uh, you know, local politicians who were, you know, restored uh, to the, you know, uh, positions of, 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 you know, uh, that they held before the U.S.-backed Kiev Putsch regime seized power in 2014 and repressed the political representation of East and South Ukraine. Um, they um, they had already had this in effect. Um, and it has to be pointed out that the Kiev regime has had martial law over all of Ukraine uh, since, uh, as well, uh, since February. And they actually had martial law over the eastern parts of the country since 2014. So, I mean, it's hardly unexpected. This is a conflict zone. And actually, uh, there has not a martial law, but a medium uh, assessed uh, increased security risk uh, status uh, has also been put in place for all the regions of Russia, the, uh, you know, besides these four, uh, which um, uh, border on Ukrainian territory. And we're talking uh, Belgorod, Crimea, uh, Sevastopol, uh, Kursk, uh, and so on. And there's also new security measures in places like Moscow, correct? Because this is a response to the terror attacks by Ukraine. For instance, the killing of Daria Dugina, the assassination yes. bombing of her, the Kirsch Bridge bombing, and the Nord Stream 2 terror attack. Is that correct? These are responses to the terror attacks, right? Yeah. And there have also been, you know, a number of sabotage attacks uh, in Belgorod, in Crimea, of course, in Donetsk and the uh, southern uh, Kherson and Zaporozhye. Uh, Kiev regime uh, covert ops have also launched a campaign of political assassinations uh, of local officials, uh, particularly, you know, in these four new territories, which is one of the major reasons why uh, the martial law is is being extended now under Russian law rather than local law, um, because um, the, the, there has been a, a campaign of covert ops of assassination of political leaders and often um, their families as well in quite brutal fashion as, as some type of um, message. Uh, some type of, of, of literally political terror. Um, so uh, that is uh, one of the principal, not the only, but one of the major reasons why uh, this this uh, extreme measure of martial law, which is you know uh, not something that Russia has done uh, before in this conflict, is is now being uh, continued in, in these new territories now that they're part of Russia.
And so, Mark, let me ask you, you're in Moscow. How much do you watch Western news? How much do you watch, you know, do you, do you check in once a day with what the Western media is saying? I no. I mean, I first of all, I don't watch news. I read news. I, I don't watch TV ever. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, but I I read Western news constantly. I mean, like uh, it. I have my feeds going always throughout the day. I read Western news. I read Russian news. I read Ukrainian news. I read Chinese news. I read news from Europe. I read news from Africa, South America, India. You know, I, I try to keep my feeds uh, constantly moving. And I would say that just observing, uh, you know, uh, the news, current events uh, probably consumes, oh, my God, uh, a very unhealthy six hours at least of every day probably more yeah i i hear you so i i listen to a lot of news and uh npr abc and fox the what the way they presented the martial law thing is they've all they all said it's a sign that the war is not going well for putin yeah no mention of ukrainian terrorism yeah, i mean did, did, so, did they did they mention at all that Ukraine has had martial law for the entirety no, of no. the conflict? No, no, of course not. No, yep. they ne never do. And so, bluntly, do you, I, and my, my take is, anytime you've lost, as in Ukraine, 20% of the country like is now occupied or next, that's going pretty badly for Ukraine. So, Mark, is, is there any indication that the war, and again, it's not over, it's not even a war yet. Putin has not declared war. But how do you think things are going? Let's just, bottom line, how do you think it's going? Um, I think it could have been going better. I think the Kremlin made a lot of mistakes, um, particularly in not a sign of, of the self-limiting restrictions of the special military operation up until now. Um, they were they did not want to occupy Ukrainian territory, but they were essentially forced to because of the flood of Western arms and funding um, into the country and um, them pushing the regime in Kiev to to, you know, uh, not accept any any political uh, settlement, any negotiations uh, for or for peace on 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 it you know, any terms that would be acceptable to Russia. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, it's not what they wanted, but I think that they should have realized that that was what was going to happen back in February, because I certainly did, um, that they would have to and, and you said, take. By the way, take, I'll, I'll just point out that you said it on this show, and I'm sure every show you're on. Yes. You, be, you have been saying that very consistently. So, the Kremlin needs to listen to backstory more. Yeah, obviously. When you're I, obviously, well, I mean, well, in general, I mean, obviously, they could learn a lot from you, Lee, certainly about the U.S. Uh, but um, yeah, they should have they should have had these reserves from the beginning, really, and they shouldn't have had to wait till now. And because they didn't, and because the Kiev regime forcibly conscripted the entire Ukrainian country with men between the ages of 16 and 60, not allowed to leave the country and they're on their 
seventh, beginning their eighth wave of of conscription at this point. Um, really uh, scraping the barrel now, um, and um, you know, uh, putting them all under arms again. You know, it's not the the best military, you know, in the world, but but manpower definitely counts. And Russia had far too few manpower to continue the offensive uh, against uh, Kiev regime fortifications in, in Donetsk um, and defend uh, the territory, uh, all the territory that they had taken everywhere at once, because that was the new uh, Pentagon war game strategy for their client state is to attack everywhere at once against Russia's uh, thinly held uh, garrison lines um, with, you know, these these quick moving uh, mechanized infantry diversion reconnaissance groups and, and human wave attacks. And it's it's a you know, it's it's kind of a no brainer strategy when your advantage is manpower because you've conscripted your entire country and the far more populous country that you are fighting has chosen for whatever reason to limit the size of their intervention force to a paltry 150,000, that that makes sense. Um, and it got some territorial success for them in Kharkov, although it came at a, at a high price because this strategy means charging into heavy fires, uh, uh, a very heavy manpower cost. But the regime is more than willing away to throw its, away its people as cannon fodder. Uh, so uh, they had some success. And now that Russia has called up its reserves and change the political status of these four regions, incorporating them into part of Russia after the referendums, which means now that the one, the Russian active duty military is a million men strong. So far, they've limited the special military operation to just 150,000. So, so really about 15% of that. But now, they will be able to deploy more of that million, plus the 300,000 reservists, plus the 70,000-plus volunteers that have also signed up. So what we're looking at is uh, the Kiev regime's manpower advantage is about to go away, and they're going to be facing parity. And you have to consider how much damage Russia did right how how successful they were with a attacking force against all military logic that was four times smaller now it's good that attacking force is going to be four times bigger and they're going to be at parity it's a whole new war game and also the rules of engagement uh, have obviously changed because Russia has started doing what the U.S. always does when it bombs and invades a country, uh, attacking the critical infrastructure, uh, particularly electricity, which drives the trains in Ukraine and uh, will really inhibit their logistics, moving troops, uh, artillery, artillery shells, ammunition, fuel, everything around. Um, it's it's going to be a whole new game. But until all of those forces are reservists are retrained uh you know for uh a, another month or so and then reorganized armed and and sent into the theaters where they can best be used uh, russia's still on the defensive um in most places not everywhere uh, but Kherson is one of the the big regions um and um it they really have a lot of reasons why 
they need to hold on to Hare Sun City and not withdraw from it to preserve their forces as they've done elsewhere. Um, uh, it's a very important uh, strategic position straddling both sides of the Niper. And if they lose Hersun City, it will be much harder to move on Odessa later in the conflict. Plus, it would be a huge, uh, you know, propaganda loss um, as well. Um, and and it would, you know, start putting, uh, you know, uh, not that I take it as a very serious threat, but there would be a, a, a conceivable threat then to Crimea, um, which is, you know, a red line of red lines. So I, the, the, the conflict could be going better. They finally taken the steps, the Russian uh the Kremlin seems to have woken up and given the military the tools that it needs to finish this. It doesn't it's that doesn't mean it's going to end quick. But now the tide will start to irrevocably turn uh, in Russia's favor. And in many ways, this counteroffensives that the Kiev regime has launched are much like the Ardennes forest counteroffenses of Nazi Germany at the end of the war. Alas, ditch effort, throwing everything they have left, all the Western gear that they have left, gear that cannot be replaced because the West has run out of stocks uh, as their own press, you know, uh, has been very loudly saying for the last few weeks. Um, it, it, they were hoping to, to get better political terms out of this, but I don't think they're going to get what they wanted. And Russian troops will have to, in theater, will have to hold on for another three or four weeks, uh, but as long as they can do that, uh, and and minimize where they have to withdraw from. Uh, come uh, mid late December, Russia's going to go on a big winter offensive, and and things will look much much worse for the Kiev regime, with no hope of them getting better again. That this is the last Kiev regime counteroffensive. There will not be another. Now now, Mark, I've heard. Russian authorities seem to be anticipating that when they launch their massive attack, the Ukrainians are going to attack the dam near Kherson, and yeah. that's part of why that's part of why people are getting out of there because yes. they expect it would flood and kill civilians. Yeah. So is is that is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, so the the fear is that they will concentrate fire on the Kohovka Reservoir Dam, the locks there. Uh, and it will cause severe flooding. It will cause a lot of damage. It will flood parts of Kherson City. It will make crossing and resupply across the Dnieper very difficult because the Kiev regime is also shelling the bridges there constantly, uh, forcing the Russian military to rely a lot on pontoons uh, and ferries. Um, it will make evacuation of civilians much harder. Um, it will certainly complicate the defense. And it has to be said that they've already attacked this dam before with U.S. supplied HIMARS, of course, because, you know, that's that's what U.S. supplied goods is for is is uh, blowing up dams um, uh, so that, uh, you know, the Ukrainian uh, or former Ukrainian people, I guess, in, in the region uh, suffer uh, under the fate of this. But it, it's it really shouldn't be questioned that they're willing to do this because they did the same thing around Kiev in the beginning of the conflict. They blew up dams uh, to to you know provide 
obstacles uh, to uh, the Russian uh, forces that were kind of pincering uh, Kiev um, in those thunder runs in the beginning of, of the conflict. Not, not the smartest move there, uh, but um, the, you know they, they certainly showed that they were willing to flood their own towns and, and drown their own people uh, if you know it, it bought the regime uh, time. No, no, Mark. Is this the same dam that's got a history? Because it was a dam. Was this a dam that was put up in order to torture the people of Crimea? Is no, this the that's, same one? That's, no, 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 no. That was already. This, this is that. This is on the Dnieper. This that was another thing. It was constructed elsewhere in in southern Kherson uh, to block. The canals that brought uh, water to the Crimea since the 1960s uh, in in the now, Soviet now, Union. The they, dam that they're planning attack. Who built that? Is it Soviet era? Yeah, of course. It? Yeah, it's all Soviet era. Every, everything in Ukraine is Soviet era. Yeah. So, so that means I assume that it is built like a tank. Yes. And it's not going to be. The no, easiest it, thing in the world for them to simply destroy it. Am I correct? No. Yeah, it, it won't be. I mean, it's not as hard as destroying a, a, a bridge. Bridges are actually harder to destroy, but it, it will take some concentration of fire. It will. But uh, they have the capability. Um, uh, and it, it is a real possibility, a real threat. And uh, we've noticed in Kiev... In the missile and drone attacks, the Ukrainians seem unable to stop it. Most of the missiles are getting through, and basically all the drones are getting through. Well, the, I mean, the the, uh, the Kiev regime presidential advisor, Alexei Aristovich, completely disagrees with that assessment. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how he accounts for all the damage to the Ukrainian electrical grid. But, for instance, the other day he said that out of um, uh, 18 drones uh, that were launched at Kiev. Um, he knocked down 35 of them himself, I think. With with a slingshot, I assume, yeah, we, because there. I think he spit at them. Yeah. I, think, I think he spit at them. Yes, and, and that because show. we've talked about it yesterday with John Mark Dugan. There, uh, Ukrainian soldiers are literally shooting at you, drones like they're ducks. And that's not a good way to take down drones. Right? Yeah, yeah, actually, well, here's the, the funny thing. They actually had on a, um, a Kiev regime soldier on Ukrainian TV a couple nights ago, and they were interviewing him because he had um, uh, supposedly uh, taken down one of the drones um, uh, with small arms fire like this. So they were they were heroizing him. Um, and he got on and he started talking about how, well, you know, they're they're really uh, a, essentially a warhead with wings and it's not really possible to to destroy them. But I was able to divert its fire. So instead of hitting the intended uh, energy infrastructure target, uh, it hit a civilian apartment building next door, uh, which, you know, at, at that point, the host of the show put his head in his palms in like this epic double-handed face palm thing. And then as soon as he got a breath to tell a question about cats. 
but it that's great. It it shows it it shows um you know that um you know wh- whenever they're making claims, oh Russia's targeting apartment buildings. No, Russia's not a targeting apartment buildings. And, you know, as long as they're not being occupied by troops that are using them as firing points, as Amnesty International pointed out, any more than the U.S. military targets apartment buildings. But apartment buildings still get hit. And in this instance, it's often the case when air defense missiles go astray and then they simply blame it on Russia. Um, uh, or in this case, where even small arms fire, uh, you know, uh, averted one of these drones off course and it hit uh, an apartment building just across the street rather than its uh, intended target. No, Mark, do you want to take the last minute here to make a prediction about what will happen in Kherson, and in, in particular, if Ukraine attacks, what do you think? Predictive future for us, Mark. Go ahead. Yeah, that's that's really tough because while I have a good idea of the Kiev regime forces, I don't have a what I consider a good number uh, estimate of the Russian manpower available to defend. Um, I would say that I think. Everything I've heard is they've built up quite significant defenses, and I think they'll manage to hold without having to withdraw from the city, but that's not 100% surety. You heard it here first, folks. Great appearance, as usual, by Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for your insight, and have a good night. Thank you, Lee. That's Mark Sloboda, everyone, and we'll be back on the backstory. And we're back in the backstory. Want to thank Mark Sobota again for a great appearance. He really explained a lot about what's going on. And again, Rod, what did you think of Mark? No, I thought that was greatly. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of headlines talking about the this uh, martial law, and uh, you know, like you said, how were they how they were phrasing it, but you know, they, they weren't talking about how Ukraine had already enlisted martial law before. And I've talked to some listeners about what they might like about Mark Sabata, and one thing that I like about him is he is realistic. He he does not sugarcoat things and apparently the general is the same kind of guy you know what i'm saying he doesn't come on and go everything's great and ukraine sucks well they call him general armageddon right so i mean (laughs) if dc comics wanted to beat marvel they'd introduce that as a character general armageddon i mean that sounds like a no-nonsense type of guy you know I wouldn't, you know, if you if you if you hear uh, General Armageddon's in the gym tonight, you know, <laughs> maybe you don't want to be in the gym with him. You know what I mean? And you know, as much as we get accused of being propagandist for Putin, we suck at our jobs because we don't come on and just go, everything's great and Putin's awesome. We criticize, and we have guests that criticize things when they need to be criticized, but always in a realistic way. And that's what they really don't like about us. They don't like the fact that Sputnik is realistic and presents a variety of views. 
They don't like that about RT or CAS or Russians in general. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, Lee, for 100% uh, diversity of thought is not uh, the type of diversity they're talking about. And I'll give an example of U.S. unreality. So the big news domestically is that Biden is releasing 15 million barrels of oil from the I'm sorry, I'm having trouble saying that word. Strategic, there I got it, got eventually. Strategic reserves. You've heard that? 15 million barrels, right, Rod? Yeah. And he's saying it's not to reduce oil prices at the pump before the election. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge over Crimea that I'd like to sell you. Does it make sense, Rod? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean... You know, um, you know, they still uh, they just they're never making any sense. Lee, I mean, these people uh, just like amateur hour every day there, whether it's at the White House press conference or even at the State Department, they're just never making sense. Well, let's go over these numbers. So 15 million barrel, 15 million. Am I saying 15 million barrels of oil he's releasing now? How many barrels of oil does the U.S. use? Do the people use per day? Do you know, Rod? Uh, honestly, no, I don't know, but I know it's probably more than fifteen, though. Twenty million barrels. So, basically, three quarters of day. yeah, three quarters. What of he's day. releasing is what we're using by dinner time. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not even th not even three quarters through the day. Yeah. And then Saudi Arabia recently cut production by two million barrels a day. Now. If I know how to do math, and I barely do, two million barrels means that he's releasing what Saudi Arabia's cut production by over a week. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it's almost almost exactly, yeah. Yeah. So it's going to have no effect, except it will have an effect. And by the way, he's. did you hear Biden come out and say that this is going to make money for the taxpayers? That will sell it at $90 a barrel, but will buy it later at 70 <laughs> Did you hear that? Oh, my God. Yeah, I heard that, Lee. I mean, and the media just, yep, there's nothing wrong. Now, let's point out that Donald Trump tried to buy oil for the strategic reserves a while ago when he was president. Do you know what oil was then? I believe 30 right? 24. Okay. And the Democrats blocked it. When he tried to buy oil at $24 a barrel, he was blocked by Democrats. And now Biden's bragging about buying it for 70. Biden is not a shrewd horse trader, shall we say. That Hunter Biden math. Yes. And, but as I pointed out, we go through 20 million barrels a day. So $15 million, 15 million barrels is a drop in the bucket. And it's not even going to have the effect because gas prices seem like they're shooting up. Now, in our neighbor to the north, Canada, Christina Freeland made an announcement today. She made a speech and she told Canadians to tighten their belts. She said bad economic times are coming for Canada. But she said optimistically. Canada's going to do better 
than most G G7 countries. So Christina Freeland's saying things are going to be very bad in Canada, but not as bad as the U.S. Now, obviously, she's not pointing out that if things are going to be bad in Canada, well, you know, who does Biden blame for the high oil prices? Vladimir Putin, right? Yeah, the uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre keeps saying uh, Putin's price hike. So she keeps repeating that narrative as well. So did you know that oil is higher priced today than it was before Russia's military operation in Ukraine? Repeat that again, I can hear you. The prices have gone up. For, forgive me. The prices were higher at the beginning of before Russia went into Ukraine. Prices were higher. So Putin's price hike is actually a price reduction. Prices of oil have gone down slightly. Does that make sense? Right, exactly. So when they say Putin's price hike, it makes no sense, even if, you know, they're liars anyway, but it makes no sense on the math. So this is, again, the Democrats are desperate, and they're releasing 15 million barrels of oil as a desperate move that's not even going to work. It's not going to have the effect. The price of gas has come down slightly recently, but it's still up a great deal, right? Yeah, since the beginning of October, it's been definitely uh, going up, Lee. Um, you know, I just I just drove up 95. It's pretty much almost $4 uh, regular coming up, that, um, up 95. And uh, the, those prices are going to increase more right before the election. Good move. Good move, Biden. You know, if he was smart, what he'd do is he'd hold this move off until the last week. But smart is not something he's being accused of. Uh, and the media is just kind of going along with it. But the media can't even get enthused about the election. Have you noticed that? Yeah, no, they're just attacking the uh, Republican candidates uh, that are, it looks like, you know, it looks like it's going to be a slaughter uh, across the board, Lee, but, you know, just as far as these uh, mail-in ballots go and uh, these uh, machines that uh, count the votes as well. So um, we'll see we'll see how that goes, but it looks like it's going to be a slaughter. And losing the Democrats, losing the House and the Senate, and also apparently losing a lot of governor's races. A lot of governor's races seem like they're going to go to GOP. I think Kara Lake's going to win in Arizona because her opponent, Hobbs, is basically hiding from her. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it came out about two weeks ago. She held uh, two slave auctions in high school. Um, and so she's running from all this stuff, Lee. Um, she doesn't want to. She said that it's beneath her to have a debate with Carrie Lake because she's not going to be able to uh, debate. Well, how do you know she's going to be not going to be able to debate if you're not even going to debate her? You know what I'm saying? No, right. And I, I see no evidence that Carrie Lake has any trouble, you know, speaking. She's a very articulate because she's a former newscaster, right? So she knows how to speak in front of a camera. Right, Rod? Oh yeah. oh, yeah, she speaks very clearly, Lee, and she also puts the media in their place because she's, she's worked with them, so she knows she knows what they're doing. And she's not afraid to go on the attack. I knew I liked Carrie Lake when she had an ad, a tweet at least, featuring my friend Andrew Breitbart. So obviously she's a Breitbart fan, and uh, I appreciate that.
So we'll continue. And coming up next hour is Kim Iverson. And you bet we'll be talking about the elections, which are less than three weeks away now. That's really no time. Is it, Rod? I mean, it occurred to me the other day, that election is real close. Three weeks is right around the corner. Yeah, it just felt like it was October, the beginning of October yesterday. It feels like it. And I have every reason to believe that if they get elected, if they take the House and the Senate, that these new candidates are cut from the same cloth as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. And some people might say it is an insult, but not me. I think these new candidates are going to be aggressive. I think even Dr. Oz, if he wins, is going to be somewhat aggressive. He's going to take his mandate. And let's go to break. And when we come back, we'll talk about other stuff and take your calls. 202-521-1320. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is Backstory. back on the backstory bringing you the truth behind the news i'm lee stranahan and this is the backstory 202-521-1320s the number if you want to call in coming up this hour we have the great kim iverson and thanks again to mark savota straight out of moscow giving us a great report on what's going on with russia and ukraine rod what in fact is the name of the show you're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Now, we're just talking about Carrie Lake, who's running for governor out there in Arizona, uh, an important state. Would you call Arizona a blue state or a red state, Rod? Mm, that's a good question, Lee. I would say it's a red state, um, but it kind of at times leans blue, but I would call it a red state. It, it does lean blue. Because, for instance, they used to be represented by John McCain and Jeff Flake. And although, in theory, they're Republicans, really that was a name only. Would you agree with that, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, but at least they, uh, someone I could agree with was uh, the sheriff from Maricopa. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, Jeff, Joe Arpaio. Yeah, he was, he was fighting against Soros for years. So uh, I did like that. And I met Joe Arpaio, by the way, a native like me, I grew up around Springfield, Massachusetts, and I found out when I interviewed Joe Arpaio that he's from Springfield originally. So that was interesting. And I got a nice picture with him and my sons. Joe Arpaio, I didn't expect to like him so much. You know, I just heard the press talking about people wearing pink underwear when they were in jail. Remember that? Yeah, and I think they had like, uh, yeah, the pink underwear and like some popcorn or something that he used to give them, and some some stu- you know stupid stuff uh, that they were complaining about that they were trying to hurt his political career over. He wasn't nice enough to criminals. That was apparently what they were upset about. So uh, let's go, go to a clip. We've been talking about Carrie Lake. Let's hear from her and go to a clip with Carrie Lake. Hit it. 
Gateway Pundit, Jordan. All right, so from Tucker Carlson, he says the CDC is about to mandate the vaccine for children to attend school. Is that something you support? Absolutely not. We will never allow that in Arizona. This is an experimental shot. Our children are not guinea pigs. And we're not going to have incidents of myocarditis in our young, precious children. We will fight that with every fiber in our being. We're not going to have this forced shot by the CDC, which has their tentacles in big pharma. And I'm going to fight that. This is an experimental shot. And we're seeing injuries from this vaccine. And we're not going to force our precious, healthy children to get a shot that is already proving to be not only ineffective, it's also proving to be dangerous. Next question. Right here. Now, let's go, before we go to the calls, and Tarif is on the line. Hold on one sec, Tarif, because I want to play one other clip. Remember Paul Ryan, Rod? Remember Paul Ryan, famous rhino and squish, Paul Ryan? He hardly ever praises Donald Trump. But guess what he praised Donald Trump on? Well, you know, because you gave me the clip, Rod. Yeah. Yeah, we got another clip for for tomorrow, but in this one, he praises him for uh, Operation Warp Speed, which tells you, uh, you know, how wrong Trump was. Yes, and continues to be sort of. So let's play Paul Ryan talking about Operation Warp Speed. And this is perfect right after Carrie Lake dropped some truth about the COVID vaccines. Hit it. Paul Ryan. Works as well, right. and I think we'll I think we'll win this one at the end of the day. So a good example of what you're talking about that, that's practical that we've already actually experienced would be like Project um, Warp Speed. Yeah, to perfect example, right? Yeah. Perfect example. Um, Basic research, commercialized technologies, and 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 a, and a profit incentive. Yeah, and regulatory relief. So we got government out of the way of, of risk taking and experimenting, and took risk away and liability protection, and bam, we bang this thing out. There's no way another country was going to give us a vaccine for COVID right. as fast as we did for, and gave it to the rest of the world. Let science and the market determine that, that winner. Do you think the world would be a different place today, or do you think it was ever even possible, given the the, the, the domestic situation that he confronts uh, and, and the worldview that he has, that Xi Jinping ever would have said, you know what? Pfizer and Moderna have, 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 have produced the state of the art. Yeah. I'm going to buy 5 billion doses of that and I'm going to reopen my economy. I, I don't think he'll do that. I don't think he, I don't think it's in his wiring. I don't think he, um, I don't think it's in his real world of real view. Now, do you know what I've not heard, Rod? I've not heard a comparison of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to the Sputnik vaccine that Russia produced. Have you heard anything about Massive amounts of young men dying of heart attacks in Russia. No, I haven't, Lee. Um, I mean, I've, I've looked, you know, I've looked at, uh, through a lot of news um, you know, across the international about these vaccines. Um, so you hear a lot of it, uh, problems in Europe, um, but um, not too much out of Asia. I think that's a little harder to uh, to determine. But as far as Russia goes, no, I haven't been seeing it. You know, Russia has a big uh, wrestling, wrestling team, hockey uh, soccer, and I haven't heard any of their players dying, collapsing in the middle of the game. No, you haven't heard that. And I, I really do wonder, they just act like the Sputnik vaccine developed by Russia very rapidly. If I remember correctly, the Sputnik vaccine was actually the first one out. Non-mRNA. It's a traditional vaccine, okay? But the ones that, that, that Ron Paul, uh, uh, this guy, uh, 
why I forget his name right now, Lee. Uh, Paul Ryan's talking about is uh, mRNA technology. And if you've heard that they're going to have uh, cancer vaccines by 2030, Lee. So, you know, it's all good. Don't worry about cancer. You can just take a shot for it. And it is weird how they just act like the Sputnik vaccine developed by Russia does not exist. It, they never talk about it. But I would be interested in seeing the vaccine compared to Pfizer and Moderna. Does that make sense? Yeah, and don't forget Johnson & Johnson, which they uh, took off the shelf after months of uh, blood clots and uh, strokes and heart attacks. Yes, thanks for reminding me, because I'm on the J&J one. I took one shot very early on. But let's go 202-521-1320. Let's go call us. Tarif, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you all for taking my call. I have two perks. One perk I got to really make to finish it off. Um, first, I'd like to say free drilling science. My first perk. My first point is this, okay, uh, one of the EU countries is want to open up relations with Russia again to get cheaper natural gas and petroleum and also Russia goods. So they're on the verge of, you know, breaking the sanctions. The, the name of the country is Greece. The second comment is doing, dealing with the lawsuit of Alice Jones, how dangerous it is and what is, is going to set a precedent. But I think it's going to be overturned in the courts once you get to the circuit or the Supreme Court. But check this out. This since this going on with Alex Jones, now you got a case being filed against Kanye West. I don't agree with everything Kanye West says, but he has freedom of speech, right? Now, the next thing is going to be the rest of us. Trump can be sued by the DNC by claiming November 3rd, 2020 elections were stolen from him. They can sue him from damages or whatever. Then you, then the people that was accusing Pfizer and Moderna of the vaccines, they can sue them by sue the people saying that hey they, they hurt our stock market blah 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 so we're gonna sue these doctors and these um activists and they go forward and forward and they can come after like me because I because I'm I'm saying Mike Reed the Bakey v, uh, VA water's contaminated they can come after me they can come after you Lee by you going after that guy was uh that Russian used to former Russian person now and he can start coming after you and the LaRouche people and everybody else so. It'd be a free for all of people just doing investigative work in journalism. Well, we can start getting sued, like um, um, like um, Max Bloomberg and Glenn uh, uh, Greenwald and um, other investigative journalists can start getting sued for digging in information to find out what's going on. So it's a dangerous precedent, and we gotta call out for what it is and start fight back and make sure this get overturned in court what happened to Alice Jones and other people that you're going to see you're going to start getting sued now. Thank you for taking my call. It, it used to be that I could dependably say truth was a defense but this suit against Kanye I see nothing he said that's not true. And Have you seen anything Kanye said that wasn't true Rod? No, uh, you know, we've, we've been talking about this since, you know, um, since the court case of George Floyd came out and all the details started coming out, Lee, especially the video and the training and all this stuff and the different angles. So, no, I don't, you know, um, you know, uh, I feel bad for the George fam uh, George Floyd dying. You know, uh, it, um, it was more negligence on uh, Chauvin's part because he knew there was uh, drugs involved, but he didn't kill him, but he did aid in his death, I guess you could say. But 
uh, he didn't force him to take the, any uh, fentanyl-laced drugs. Right. And obviously, the narrative was it's a racist murder that, sh- that the Minneapolis police officers killed him because he was black. And that narrative is complete BS. There's no testimony whatsoever that race played any motivating factor in his death. Agreed? Yeah, Lee, no, I've read, uh, I've read no nothing. No one can argue that. Yeah, and I think I was in the Associated Press. They were talking about Kanye, and uh, then they repeated in the trial that the uh, uh, that the defense put up a, uh, uh, a some type of medical person saying that they know it's a lack of oxygen, but they never say the other side. They act like the court is only one person saying anything. You know what I mean? On the stand, there's no rebuttal, which would be the rebuttal showing if if uh, that the defense put up uh, saying. That if George Floyd was just found in his apartment lying on his couch, they would say it's an overdose. You know what I'm saying? Now, I also want to talk about Ivan Darshenko. Darshenko was acquitted last night. He is a person that, why can't Durham win cases, Rod? You know, this is. Yeah, the DC juries are falling asleep. I'm literally, I saw it in the assessment. They're just falling asleep. It's too complicated for them to follow and if it's trump's names involved they just say oh you know you know you heard this russia gate stuff for so long uh you know so he must be he must be guilty and you know this guy and even though uh darchenko is admitted to lying and making up stuff they still let him go because he wasn't in charge with lying about the dossier he clearly did that he was charged with lying to the fbi about statements he made about the dossier does that make sense? He was not charged with lying, even though he, the dossier that was submitted to the FBI was full of lies, right? But that's not what they charged him for. They charged him with lying to the FBI, not lying in general. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, hundred percent. And just those DC tri- uh, those DC juries is just. You can't you can't put any faith in them. I've seen them. Uh, I know uh, Jason's been there with the Awan trial. I was there at, at the verdict. Um, so, you know, just, you're just almost never going to get a, a fair trial in DC. Uh, almost like a ninety nine point nine percent chance you won't. Now, also about Darshenko, we played the clip I believe a few weeks ago, where Trump at a rally said, "Darshenko, that does that sound Russian to you? Remember that, Rod?" Yeah, yeah. So let me address something. Dear President Trump, ex-President Trump, you dummy. I say that respectfully. Darshenko does not actually sound Russian to me. Do you know what it sounds? Think about it, Rod. Darshenko, here's a hint. Enko. What does that sound to you? Sounds Ukrainian. Yes. And someone confirmed that for me. It's a Ukrainian family name. Now, I'm not saying he's not Russian because he was born in Russia, although he went to school in, in America. But the name Darshenko does not sound purely Russian. It sounds more Ukrainian. But a c- couple things about him. And that was Donald Trump attempting to blame Russia for the person who lied, in a sense. Wrong. So Darshenko, do you know who he worked for? For a few years, 99 to 2004, I believe. I'm not looking at my notes. 
but he worked for the Open World Leadership Center. The Open World Leadership Center is a part of Library of Congress that was founded by George Soros and funded by Soros and Mikhail Khodorkovsky, two totally anti-Putin guys. Soros and Khodorkovsky, especially Khodorkovsky, very much anti-Putin. So the fact that Yarshenko worked for that group tells you he was not a pro-Putin Russian. Does that make sense, Rod? Oh, yeah, 100%. Once you started, uh, you said, once you said open, I, I knew it was going to have something to do with uh, George Soros and obviously the Library of Congress, which I still and, can't get how that people have allowed that. Right. Kordakovsky, I believe, gave him a million dollars to form that group. And Soros was on the board. And it's all very clear. And then Yarshenko went to work for Strobe Talbot, Bill Clinton's Oxford roommate, and uh, an important part of the Clinton administration on Russia policy. Again, a big anti-Putin guy, Strobe Talbot, who headed Brookings Institute. And Yarshenko went to work there. But I've talked about this. John Solomon and Dan Bongino never mentioned Strobe Talbot or his role. But he's the connection between the Clintons personally, not just in the administration. Strobe Talbot has been one of Bill Clinton's closest friends for over 50 years. Strobe knew Bill before Hillary knew Bill. And Yarshenko worked for that guy. So it was totally misreported. I'm the only one talking about how he, Breitbart did report it, that Yashchenko worked for Brookings. But that's the important thing to look at. So anyway, he, he was acquitted. I don't have any feelings about that one way or another, except it makes me question whether uh, Durham is at all competent. Does that make sense, Rod? I think he's an incompetent prosecutor, possibly worse than incompetent. What do you think, Rod? Yeah, like I said, I've seen him in personally. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to speak to him just because uh, how long the uh, the case the, the case was going, uh, the trial was going. I uh, wasn't able to speak to him, but the people he had up there presenting the the case and questioning uh, the witnesses, they just seemed like uh, people around my age in their the mid thirties or early thirties, young lawyers trying to make a name for themselves. And that's not that's not the type of people you want in a case like this. You need seasoned, experienced people to, to present to the jury. Now, Command Central, I'm going to go, go to the calls here with Ingrid, and then when we come back, we'll play a clip from Paul Manafort, former political prisoner Paul Manafort. 202-521-1320. Ingrid, you're on. What's on your mind? Well, I may be way out in left field here because I haven't really followed Darchenko case. Um, and I did hear you, I think you just said something about telling Trump he was a dummy. But today, John Kiriakou did a segment with Bruce Fine, and they did a few minutes on this. And Bruce Fine was blaming Trump for uh, forcing uh, the, what's his name, Durham, Dunham, whatever, forcing him to do something that wasn't really feasible. And, and so I thought, I didn't, I didn't really like the way he was 
describing that. It would be interesting to to see for you to see maybe his take on that at some point, like later. Well, you know, John said Bruce Fine, who's a libertarian attorney, is one of his best friends. And maybe I'll see if we can get Bruce Fine on. In fact, Rod, call John and see if there's any way we can get Bruce Fine on. Because I'd prefer to hear it from Fine's mouth. But uh, I think a prosecutor made perfect sense. But Durham was not doing it the way I would have done it at all. I would have called Alexandra Shalupa. I would have charged her with some stuff. He didn't charge any of the people I would have charged. Does that make sense, Ingrid? Yeah, sure. Like I say, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but he, he should have been able well, to make some kind of a case. <laughs> yes, and he should have done what prosecutors do, which is you set up the low-hanging fruit at first, then you go for the big guys. We should have seen Cody Scherer in there, Derek Scherer, Strobe Talbot, and Jonathan Weiner, Jonathan Weiner, who did not cooperate. Jonathan Weiner, the attorney and State Department official under Clinton and under Obama. Jonathan Weiner, the attorney for Mikhail Kornikovsky and Bill Browder. I would have called him. Durham didn't do any of the stuff I would have done. So I'd love to talk to Bruce about that. But uh, let's go to this clip. We have Paul Manafort talking about Russiagate. That's another guy I'd give my left arm to uh, interview. But Paul Manafort, I can see why he wouldn't be on Russian-funded media, because he's already been falsely accused and put in jail and silenced. But let's hear this clip of Manafort talking about Russiagate. Hit it. So... When you're looking at this, you know, I, I just kind of mentioned it out there. The day one, as we're recording this, of the Danchenko trial has just gotten underway. And one of the big bombshells that we're hearing is that he was offered a million dollars by the FBI to corroborate the Steele dossier. They went back to him and they said, hey, we know you're the source. Because to your point, the U.S. federal government, I used to be in the intelligence community, they can find this stuff out very, very quickly. With everything that the NSA has, uh, they know. They know very quickly. So they couldn't corroborate it. They go to Devchenko. He can't corroborate it. My question is, did they ever go to Paul Manafort and offer you anything to corroborate any of this dossier? Well, they, they didn't offer me anything, but they they were intimidating me and threatening right. me of what was going to happen to me uh, if you didn't. Uh, if I didn't tell the truth and the truth was giving up Donald Trump, but I told him I would tell the truth. And I did. And it wasn't the truth that they wanted to hear because they, they, they weren't dealing with the truth. They were dealing with a narrative that they knew was false. Mooks has admitted the campaign manager admitted it. Uh, and what they did very cleverly in the, in the Mueller report to the uneducated eye is they blurred Russian interference and Russian collusion. Yes. And Russian interference was nothing that we had Ukrainian interference. We had Romanian interference. We had China interference. There are countries interfering cyberly in Russian elections every year. And we do the same, by the way, in other countries. Um, but that's very different than colluding with a foreign national government to undermine an election. And Mueller 
came down on the right side of there being no collusion, but he still tried to blur the line because of Weissman to imply that there was still something sinister as part of, as part of the Russian interference. Nobody ever found one iota of evidence because there was none. And yet the media, and even through the Durham trials, has never retracted you know, the false information that they put out against me, against the president uh, and, and others over the six years of, uh, of this crisis. And I mentioned this before. But Alexander Chalupa, who's the DNC operative who interfered in the election by going to Ukraine embassy and digging up dirt on Donald Trump, something that Chalupa also did for the Open World Leadership Center. And you can find that very easily for yourself. If anyone wants to know what I'm talking about, go to a search engine and type in WikiLeaks Ali, like Muhammad Ali, Ali Chalupa, like Taco Bell. If you type in Wikipedia, WikiLeaks, Ali Chalupa, you'll find the email that Ali Chalupa sent to Democratic official saying she met with Ukrainian journalists at the Open World Leadership Center. She misnames it, but that's what she's talking about. And I spoke on the phone and confirmed that with the Open World Leadership Center. So this Soros-funded, Kordakovsky-funded group was central to what was happening in Russiagate. Now, I mention this because Paul Manafort was targeted by Ali Chalupa. She went to his hometown, New Britain, Connecticut, and did a rally against Manafort. That's why Durham should have called Ali Chalupa. She was targeting before anyone was paying attention. The reason Manafort was targeted was because Alex Chalupa targeted him. And that's 100% clear. All you do is look at the timeline. And her event against Manafort was public. And also she's made statements on the record on her sister Andrew Chalupa's podcast. She hates Manafort. Also, by the way, I believe that Alex Chalupa was a big part of why Julian Assange was targeted. Because that WikiLeaks email coming out from Alexander Chalupa actually exposed the origins of Russiagate, but everyone ignored it, but they didn't. Chalupa's talked about how she was pissed at Julian Assange for exposing that true email. And I believe, you know, Chalupa was the one setting up the targets, Manafort, Trump, and Assange. Does that make any sense, Rod? Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, we've been talking about this stuff for years, and it's just, uh, you know, the one thing the Durham investigation did do, the one good thing is to put all this information out there. Uh, like Robbie Mook saying, you know, we made it all up. Uh, you know, I was there when he said it, and he didn't have a care in the world, like he was going to get in trouble at all. Right. So... Yeah, you know, that's that's why I've said some of the information that came out of the trial was useful, but especially useful to someone like me who cares about the truth and is telling the truth about who's behind Russiagate for years. Now let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by the great Kim Iverson on the backstory.
We are back on the backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joined now by a great friend of the show, a great guest, the fabulous Kim Iverson. Hey, Kim, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about the oil mess the, the, the Biden administration has created. First off, you're in Southern California. Have you, in fact, seen a gas station selling gas for seven dollars a gallon yet? Uh, Six ninety nine. So yeah, <laughs> I mean it's getting right up there. I, that was just the other day driving by a gas station, seeing it at six ninety nine. And I assume you saw Joe Biden doing uh, media availability recently, br- bragging about seven dollar a gallon gas in California. Uh, you know. Nothing surprises me with Joe Biden anymore. (laughs) The crazy things that come out of his mouth. Um, If he thinks that seven dollars in gas is something, you know, seven dollars for a gallon is something to um, be proud of. You know, that that would be extremely surprising. You know, I mean, look, people, they need to get places. People are going to work. People are needing to take their kids to school. This is you know, it's really serious. It's costing people a lot of money. On top of that, you know, we have obviously the increase in everything else because everything requires transportation to get to and from. And when gas prices are up, everything is just increased in price. So this is really, you know, hurting people. And it's amazing to me that Democrats aren't realizing this and actually trying to make some sort of um, real true headway to change this. Yes, and especially since the election is so close. Now, let's go to a clip here. This is the State Department, the Biden State Department, talking about the problem with oil. Hit it. You know, just cannot confirm or deny that report. Um, are we to take the Saudis' word for it since they said that, that the one month cup was asked for? And then secondly, is there any update on uh, how you guys are reassessing or changing the relationship with the Saudis? Uh, today because, you know, they're seemingly already reacting. They did, they disinvited a Biden official to an event today. They're seemingly already moving uh, to adjust the relationship themselves. Have you guys made any progress on that front you can share? Sure. So uh, as it relates to uh, the, the, a specific meeting, I, I don't have anything or sorry, I, I, the, a specific request. Uh, for any kind of delay. I, I don't have anything to, to offer on that. But I think what's important here is that over the course of this administration, as it relates to the conversation around energy, uh, we have been quite clear uh, uh, at every corner that supply uh, should meet demand. Uh, as this country, as our economy, and as economies uh, around the world continue to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic and the impacts that the pandemic had on our economy and economies around the world, that the uh, demand for energy uh, should be met by uh, appropriate supply. Uh, and so in recent weeks, the uh, Saudi, uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia conveyed to us privately and publicly that they had an intention to reduce oil production, which uh, not only would uh, impact supply, uh, but it would also increase Russian revenues uh, and blunt the effectiveness of the sanctions that this country and our allies and partners have been uh, in placing on Russia. That would be the wrong decision to make. 
Uh, and so we presented that analysis, and we presented that there was no market basis to cut production targets, uh, and that they could easily wait and see how the energy market uh, developed over the coming months before taking uh, this step. And then so their decision to cut production uh, was short-sighted for another, a number of reasons. Hmm. Now, it seems to me, I don't know the oil business intimately, but it seems to me the Saudis are in the oil business to make money. Is that right, Kim? Yeah, that would be that. That would be what I think they're in in the business for. Sure. <laughs> so, and I understand why there did not accede to the Biden's request to increase oil production because they made the argument, well, it's going to help Russia. Well, it's going to help Saudi Arabia too, decreasing oil production. It drives the price up for everybody. And uh, that's the goal of the Saudis. So what is the Biden administration? And again, I, I have a lot of criticisms of Saudi Arabia, but they are an important trading partner for us. What's the Biden administration think they're doing for their trying to piss off the Saudis, Kim? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that what we're seeing is the U.S. is being ganged up on. You know, we're seeing uh, with Russia and China, and uh, we've got much of the world not following suit with the whole go after Russia scenario. You know, you've got a lot of um, rhetoric that, oh, the whole world is against Russia. That's just not the case. Actually, many countries seem to be taking advantage of this opportunity to finally stick it to the bully. And the United States has operated like a bully for decades now. We've abused our powers. Since World War II, we've really uh, wasted the good faith and the good name of the United States that we had built uh, for generations. And suddenly, you know, as we developed into this worldwide, worldwide uh, bully, especially, I would say, really kind of starting probably prior to the Clinton administration, but um, we really ramped up new ways to go after countries. And, you know, we use financial leverage in order to go after many of them. And a lot of them seem to be really sick of it. They're tired of the leverage that we have over them for one reason or another. And they're sick of the rhetoric then that Washington spews out. I mean, you've got the Biden administration uh, unwilling to even meet with the Saudis for a while, you know, snubbing them, treating them like crap, and then basically saying, well, we could treat you however we want because we're powerful. And that's sort of been the the message of the United States for a while, squandering the good name, squandering, squandering what America really uh, aimed to stand for. And it hasn't been just the Biden administration. It's been administration after administration after administration. It's been built up for a really long time. Um, and so, you know, in Trump's credit, I do think that Trump actually tried to repair a lot of that by by striking business deals and kind of keeping things business, straight, straight business between countries. But we do see that, of course, once Biden got into, into play, that it was, you know, with, it's, it's more of the same of the moral posturing of, well, we don't like what you do or the way you run your country or, the, or how you, you know, your rules, your laws. And so therefore we're, we're going to, um, you know, demonize you and bully you. And all of that is just, you know, it's just, uh, coming back at us. And now these countries are kind of ganging up. They realize that we're in a vulnerable situation and they're taking advantage of it. 
So I think part of this is not just Saudis wanting to make money, but I also think part of this is other countries that they have a lot of pride. They view themselves as powerful, and now they're exerting their power. They, they don't like being under the United States thumb, and they're now getting together, and they're basically pushing back. And do you get the sense that the unipolar world, the world that the U.S. could boss around, could bully, is effectively over, practically, that things have changed? Do you get that sense, Kim, that the unipolar world is over and that the multipolar world is rising? What's your sense of things, Kim? Yeah, absolutely. We're not we're not getting our power back as a unipolar. Uh, everything revolves around the United States. That the United that the president of the United States is the leader of the free world. Um, I think all of that is over, and it's going to be. I, I think it's going to be very difficult for some U.S. politicians to come to terms with that, to recognize it. You know, they're still acting and posturing like we're the the big, you know, we're the the most powerful nation on the planet. And I think, uh, unfortunately, those days are over. So it didn't have to be that way. You know, we could have used our our power as as the most powerful country. We could have used that in a better way to to build bridges and uh, inroads with other countries and to try to help them. But instead, we did a lot to destroy. And so, yeah, I do think that we are at the end of the U.S. empire. I think it was very short-lived. It's a, you know, it's a blip when you compare it to previous empires like the Roman Empire. But everything moves faster right now because we're in a digital age. You know, everything just works at warp speed. And so it makes sense that the U.S. would have this power for a period of time. But uh, And it's not that I think we're going to be replaced by another country. I don't think another country is going to be the most powerful country on Earth, although I wouldn't be surprised if China does rise up to that position. Uh, that, that to me is very scary. But I do think that we're certainly going to be in a position where there's more than one power player on the globe. Well, I also think I would rather be respected than feared. Does that make sense? If other countries look at the United States, I do not want them fearing us so much as I'd like them respecting us. And I think the respect we have has actually, they talked about how bad Trump was, but I think less of the world respects us under Biden than did under Trump. What do you think, Kim? Um, maybe, I don't know if they really respected us under Trump. I just think they saw an opportunity to try to repair some of the damage and the resentment that's been building up. Uh, I think that they, they looked at Trump and they probably look at any future Republican as an opportunity to, yeah, just repair, I think, uh, damaged relationships because they understand that Republicans have taken more of a position of, look, everything's just business. You know, we're just doing business. Well, let me, let me correct what I said. I, I do not think that they respected us a lot under Trump, but I think as bad as things were, they've gotten worse under Biden. That's the only point I'm making there, actually. Do you agree with that? Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt. Things are much worse under Biden. I mean, we're we're definitely in a worse position. The, the world, um, what happened, you know, Biden, unfortunately, represented, you know, he, he got into the presidency, and it's pretty much a reflection of his life. I mean, he's he's at the point in his life, just in his life cycle, where he's, you know, declining 
uh, but maybe doesn't realize it mentally, right? You know, we see him stumble, we see him fumble, and he doesn't maybe fully understand that he's at that point in his life now. And unfortunately, it's a reflection also of the United, of, of the presidency, of the office of the presidency of the United States, and just the United States in general, that there's this, you know, the U.S. almost is like a feeble old man that hasn't realized they've become a feeble old man. You know, the United States has been acting like, oh, I'm young, I'm spry, I've got all the, uh, the energy, and, I, and I'm respected, and I, you know, powerful, and not realizing that actually the rest of the world has soured on us for a while. And so, yeah, Biden took the reins at a time when there's already very low morale towards the United States around the world. And Biden getting in there and then behaving like he's still a high school quarterback, you know, acting like I can bully you around, I can push you around because I have all the power without realizing, look, you've become an 83-year-old feeble old man. That is what I think the United States is acting like. You know, just going after the world and pretending like we're still this almighty, powerful country when in reality they're pushing back and showing us we're not and that we haven't been for a while, but they're now ready to really show that to us. Now, we've talked a lot over the years, Kim, about the homeless problem in Southern California because I used to live in L.A. And I've everything I've heard from my brother who lives out there and everyone else I know in L.A. is has gotten much worse. And recently, I saw Susan Sarandon, the actress and a, a, a liberal, no Republican, Susan Sarandon showing footage of the homeless problem in L.A. So I thought that was significant because it's acknowledging, you know, the truth that there's a real problem with homelessness and it's they can't blame the Republicans for it. I, I saw no attempt to, by her, by Susan Sarandon, to blame it on the Republicans. So did you see that? And do you think the homeless problem in L.A. or California in general or a, a lot of places in the country in general is going to affect the Dem- Democrats negatively? Kim. Oh, I would like to think that it would impact Democrats negatively, but I'm not 100 percent certain here in California it's going to do any difference. I mean, in in liberal areas, most of the homelessness is like California, Washington, New York. You know, people just vote blue no matter who, and they don't really stop to think. And I don't think that there's a huge, you know, the people that actually would have voted Republican to actually make change have largely left the state. So. The red representation in these states is dwindling, and now you're left with just a a lot of blue, more blue disproportionately in these states. So I don't think, unfortunately, that it's going. There's going to be a shift. I think that this is still going to be, you know, the status quo. It's going to remain this way. It's not going to really affect anything, unfortunately, because what's happened instead is rather than people voting and trying to make change in these states, they've just opted to leave. Well, also, I'll blame the Republicans for that because, and I'll ask the question in general, I won't just pick on the Republicans. I've not heard any Republican or anyone offer any solutions for the homeless problem. It's one thing to say that there's a problem, and obviously there is, but have you heard any politician, anyone, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Socialist, Green, 
anyone give a solution for the homeless problem? Kim. Yeah, I mean, good point. Uh, no, no one's given a solution. And it's a very difficult problem so I, to understanding them that it is, it's not easy to figure out the solution to the homeless problem. There's a lot of different possible solutions, but a lot of people are against those solutions. And the people that are against them range from left to right, depending on the solution. So it's a very difficult, um, it's, it's a difficult situation and there aren't very many solutions by anybody given but, you know, the most important thing is Democrats are the ones in power. They're the ones who are going to remain in power here and in these blue states. And so they're the ones it's incumbent upon them to come up with the solutions. But you're right. Very few other people are able to really either. They just complain a lot about it. Now, do you have any idea? Because I think the solution, unfortunately, is making it saying to people, you can't sleep here. You can't sleep on the street. You can't sleep in a tent on the street. And People, where they're going to go, I'm, I'd rather have them in shelters. And that means you need to have shelters for people. But that's why I think the solution is. And no one wants to do that. You, what do you think? Do you have any ideas? If Kim Iverson were in charge of everybody, what would you do about homelessness, Kim? Yeah, I think the first thing I would do is I would make homelessness. Now, this is going to be. You know, people aren't going to like this answer, but I would I would make homelessness illegal, essentially, um, not right. is it by putting them in jail, but by saying you're not allowed to camp out here anymore. And when you make that rule, when you make that law, then you can legally move them somewhere else. Right. You can say, well, now you're going we have the right, um, you know, you say, we have the right to move you someplace else. Where right now, you know, it's not illegal here to be homeless. So they can just continue to let them camp out uh, and invade, you know, public space. So the first step, I would say, is to make it illegal. And then, but when you make it illegal, you have to have some place for them to go. You can't just make it illegal and then say, go somewhere else. Like they have nowhere to go, right? So what you have to do is build, uh, like you said, shelters of some kind. Um, projects, I suppose, where it's like, you know, mass, you know, large buildings that give them their own space, small space. You know, you've got people, though, that are very against that. They say, well, why would you give them some place to live for free? And I say, hey, if you're, if you're homeless, you are free to go live there yourself. If you want to go live there for free, by all means, you're not going to want to. It's not going to be a place you're going to want to be. So you're going to want to keep working and make money so that you can afford some other place. But at least this place would be available to you if you ever got to that point in life for whatever reason. So I, I do think we need to build shelters someplace, um, you know, and, and then make it illegal and tell these people you have to go to this place that we've provided for you. And if you keep violating that, then you will serve jail time if that's, you know, ultimately, you know, because you cannot be here. We provided you a place. And I think that's the most humane thing to do. Give them places to live showers, uh, social workers, reha rehabilitation. A lot of it is drug addiction and mental health, and that has to be addressed. So I do think there needs to be facilities that are built that are staffed with social workers, uh, people that can help them with, their, with any sort of mental health problem, and, and also 
get them off of drugs. That's it's got to be like a giant rehabilitation center, essentially, that they're sent to. And if they don't want to be there, they don't have to be. You know, they can go and work and and make money and and afford a place like the rest of us do. But that is what I do think that that is probably the best solution uh, that we have. But people have to agree to it, and that's very difficult. No, and like bartenders say, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So, Kim, let me ask you this. I, I want to get into a discussion about Tulsi Gabbard. But let me start by asking you, what do you think of Tulsi Gabbard in general? Of Tulsi just in general? Um, yeah. I was, a, I was a giant supporter of Tulsi Gabbard. I, I helped campaign for her, uh, did a lot of segments, interviewed her, uh, friends with her, you know, friendly with her. And uh, really admired her during her presidential campaign. I ultimately did not end up voting for her. I, w- I live in the state of California. I felt like after the New Hampshire primary, she should have stepped out of the race. Um, didn't. And so she was on the ballot in California. But I ultimately cast my vote ultimately for Bernie Sanders because I felt like he had the best chance at actually getting the nomination from at that point. Um, I re- was really super hopeful for Tur- Tulsi. Had she done better in the New Hampshire primary, I would have, I would have uh, absolutely voted for her in California. If I felt, if I felt like there was still some momentum there, but now Tulsi Gabbard famously left the Democratic Party. So I'll ask it this way: Did you think Tulsi jumped, or was she pushed? Both in leaving the Democrats. Yeah, I think it was both, but I think it was very late. I think that, you know, she should have made that announcement a long time ago. So I think that the announcement was more timed towards her releasing a podcast, quite frankly. it I, I don't think it was, unfortunately, I don't think that it had anything to do with like any real true sense of um, now is the moral time. You know, they've, they've crossed the line. I finally had it. I'm leaving the Democratic Party. The reality of it is that happened a long time ago. She should have spoke up a long time ago, like the vast majority uh, of us that were sort of Tulsi supporters. Um, but she left the Democratic Party, in my view, to promote her podcast. And it worked. It shot her podcast. You know, she released her podcast the same day that she announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party. Um, that was her podcast episode. It was her announcing that she was leaving the Democratic Party. The announcement that she made was a clip from that podcast, and it shot that podcast up to number one on Apple. So the timing was really more about economics. Smart, good for her, um, but that's what that was about. But uh, do you think there could have been a teachable moment there for the Democrats? Because I think they're losing a lot of people. I don't think Tulsi is a famous one, but I think it's they're slowly by attrition losing people. What should the Democrats learn if they want to stop losing people? Kim? I didn't learn anything from that. That was, It was a bunch of horse cr- I mean, I'm sorry. It was her leaving the Democratic Party that day was worthless. It meant nothing to anybody. The Democrats, she'd already pretty much, I mean, she'd already left them. They didn't want her. They were already demonizing her a long time ago. She was already demonizing them a long time ago. So they didn't learn anything from that. It was just, they were saying, wow, you had to make a public announcement about that. Uh, thought you did that a long time ago. I mean, it was like a break. It was like announcing you've broken up with somebody a year after you broke up with somebody. 
I mean, if so, so teach- no, no, I agree. They didn't learn anything. But do you think they should learn something from it? Because I actually, I'm a person on the right, but I feel like the dangerous situation we're in. I think we need two vital, strong political parties to present a real alternative. And I think the Democratic Party is becoming a real marginal party. The people in the Democrat Party, they are taking increasingly extreme positions that do not appeal to a lot of people. Do you agree with that, Kim Iverson? Yeah, completely. I mean, their their positions are no longer, you know, people just don't resonate with their positions. Um, they're becoming more extreme on the culture war. Yeah, I mean, people just want them to focus on what matters, and they're not really focusing on that. You know, they focus on January 6th. They focus on culture war issues, Donald Trump, and they're not focused on the things that matter, which is the economy right now. People care about being able to afford gasoline, food, and Democrats are still screaming about January 6th. I mean, people just do not view that as a threat to democracy. They're viewing the threat from their bank account. That's where they see the threat happening. And Democrats have just completely lost it. So, you know, Democrats don't make any sense. Um, I just personally had a, a situation with this, for example, where, you know, I've got a problem in my house that the HOA is supposed to deal with from a neighbor, a neighbor and I are in a dispute, and they took the side of the neighbor, even though the neighbor is clearly in the wrong, legally, by every single metric, the neighbor is clearly in the wrong. And they've taken the side of the neighbor because of wokeness. They say, well, that person is a member of a minority group, and so therefore the way they perceive it matters more than me. This person is blasting a subwoofer into my house all day, every day. And they're saying that the person doesn't have to turn it down because they're a member of a minority group. And I'm like, I'm a minority. I'm an Asian woman. They say, well, that's, you're white. You know, Asian women are white now. (laughs) So the wokeness has gotten to the point of being so absurd that, you know, they've abandoned all reason. And that's happening on a political level, on a national level, and it's happening on a micro level, like just with my own little experience with it. That they're so woke, they can't even see reality. And they can't behave in a way that, you know, mimics reality. So they've lost it. They've totally lost it on every level. And they care more about wokeness than anything else. And it's, yes, it's drive. People are fleeing the party. Now, I think I have a solution for you, Kim. It's three words. You play drums. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yes, I've thought about that. I just want my neighbor to stop blasting the subwoofer in my house versus, you know, me having to um, join in on the, on the noise. I mean, it's just, it's absurd, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that's, that's how Democrats think though. You know, that's how they're thinking these days is if, if you're a member of an oppressed, what they view to be, you know, more oppressed than my group, for example, then I just have to live with it because they've gone through a, you know, that, literally that's what my HOA president said to me was, well, they've had a hard life, and we can't even imagine the things that they've gone through in their life. And I'm like, so I have to live with a blasting subwoofer into my house? And they're like, yeah, basically, yes. <laughs> well, what you could try, because in terms of woke rock, paper, scissors, because it's tough to figure out which minority group, you should go over to them and say, 
I'm actually a trans woman. And if you're trans, maybe then you win. I'm telling you, I'm saying I'm a trans woman from Ukraine. And I swear they may. And walk with a limp, too. Yeah. And then maybe they would say, well, then your concern matters more than their concern. So you win and we'll tell them to turn down the subwoofer. I've genuinely thought about that because we're at that point where it's just they're not willing. You know, it's the the minority, whoever it is that they view to be the most oppressed wins, no matter what the situation is. Now, Kim, we're almost out of time, but great parents always great to talk to you. So where's your show? Is the Kim Robertson show, is YouTube still your main platform or have you branched out to other platforms? Um, for right now, YouTube is still my main platform. So that might change in a month or so. But as of right now, you can find the Kim Robertson show on YouTube. No, keep on keeping on because YouTube's obviously, whatever criticism I have of it, YouTube is not going anywhere. I think that's safe to say. So, Kim Iverson, great appearance as always. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks in Moscow to Mark Slavota for great appearance. And thanks so much to all of our callers. And we'll be back tomorrow. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this has been another great episode of The Backstory. Backstory.